there will be volatility in the fossil fuel industries. There will be overcorrections, mismanagements. And you're absolutely right to say that there will be investment opportunities. And the way that I sort of frame this is that, you know, there are sort of long-term investments and short-term trading opportunities. And what we're seeing currently has been a, you know, a wonderful trading opportunity in fossil fuels. We know that they're not going to disappear overnight. We know it's going to be a slow and gradual process, probably slower and more gradual than I would wish. But yeah, absolutely right to say that along that path, there will be volatility. And, uh, you know, there's a, a consultancy called Thunder Said Energy that have pointed to the, the decline of whale oil when, you know, diesel fuel and, you know, petrol fuel were discovered. And that as the demand for whale oil fell, it didn't actually, well, it meant it was a bad investment and companies are going bankrupt within the industry. And that's what I mean about, you know, an oil project being a bad investment for the company itself. But for investors like us looking at the stocks, as companies go bankrupt, and as you say, as supply and demand mismatches more aggressively, which has happened most obviously with coal, which, you know, for which global demand peaked in 2013, and there's been huge underinvestment, and now we're seeing the spike, you know, there will be trading opportunities that are short term along the way, but you have to be very astute. And I'd say the thing that I would challenge is this idea of a new uh, sort of oil and fossil fuels super cycle that is, you know, five to 10 years long. These are shorter term trading opportunities as I see them at least. Welcome to the Exponential Investor Podcast. Want to be a better, smarter, more clued up investor? Well, you've come to the right place. We cover the breakthrough investment ideas you don't hear about in the mainstream to keep you on top of the megatrends and opportunities reshaping our world. Hello and welcome to the Exponential Investor Podcast. Sam Volkering, your usual host, is away this week. But I'm very lucky to be joined by Nick Hubble, or Nikolai Hubble, whatever you prefer. Uh, he's based over in Japan, so it's a late night for him, and we really appreciate you uh, you tuning in at this late hour, Nick. It's a pleasure. They call me Niku here, which means meat. <laughs> yeah, Yaki Niku. I actually probably would know that. Um, anyway, there's a fair bit going on at the moment, uh, Nick. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about is whether you've been following uh, the Conference of Parties up in Glasgow and whether you had any... Uh, any little things you wanted to share from the climate summit that's happening in the UK, you know, 10,000 miles away from where you are? Yeah, I lost interest a little bit because uh, I was invited, but there weren't any vi you know, VIP private jets left and they couldn't fit my motorcade. And I probably would have fallen asleep if I got there anyway. So I lost interest a little bit. Um, these things have been going on in their various forms for a very long time now, causing nothing but trouble as far as I'm concerned. And I think most people would agree at this point, uh, given some of the recent action. But... The part of this that has interested me is that there's been a number of announcements regarding nuclear energy recently, and, and COP has been part of that. And I think this is the part of the whole green energy world that you and I agree on, the idea that nuclear power has been um, disappointingly sidelined as part of this, and, and it might be making a huge comeback now. All the key nations that I pay attention to are either waking up to the, to the, the, the reasons why we should have been on nuclear for the last for at least few decades, or they're actually making announcements that they are going to turn towards nuclear or at least back to, towards nuclear. So I think that part I'm very excited about and I've been writing about that for Goldstock Fortune. So it, it's not all uh, fun and games. There is, uh, there is a serious side to this, which I think uh, could lead to some investment gains. Yeah, I mean, certainly we've spoken about it before and we quite agree that it would be a wonderful part of the energy mix, the key, the key stats are sort of around, you know, how deadly it really is or how dangerous it really is. The classic comparison is people probably don't think it, but coal is by such a great degree the deadliest source of power available, mainly because of what it does to the air that we breathe and the effects that it has on 
life expectancy, especially in Asian developing cities, is simply extraordinary. Um, nuclear would be a far preferable source of baseload power, but obviously there are, you know, there are rightful concerns around it. Um, mine probably would be around economics at the moment. So we know that our sort of current fleet, let's say here in the UK, our current fleet of nuclear is aging. And if we're going to replace it with large scale nuclear power that we, you know, the nuclear stations that we know and expect. The problem is that firstly, all of the nuclear power stations that are being built currently are, they're running, you know, five or 10 years over time in terms of how they're getting built. The Hinkley Point plant in in the UK was fixed at a, an electricity price of £92 per megawatt hour. That was inflation adjusted. So now it's sort of 110, 120. And the, you know, at least before the gas crisis, the wholesale power of electricity was about 50. So already we're talking way higher. And the other effect that's coming over the next decade or two is that the costs of solar and wind are going to keep declining. Uh, it's a zero marginal cost form of power. So once the infrastructure is in place, it's generating and we know it has its own problems. But the economic case against nuclear is somewhat profound. Do you see any hope for uh, that changing or do you feel like, as I am curious about, that if there was a sort of global realisation and everyone was pushing towards nuclear, that there could be some sort of development, either of a new technology like small modular reactors or just to improve the current project management, basically, of the, the current system? Yeah, I haven't learned too much about that side of the nuclear power world. But I was surprised to learn that uranium, in terms of the cost, is a very small part of the cost of running a nuclear power plant. I think it's only about 10% of the cost, depending on, on how old the reactor is. And I read a statistic that I believe if the if the uranium price doubled, it would only add, uh, I've forgotten the number off the top of my head, but it was a surprisingly small you know, percentage increase in the amount of power. So uh, I think the investment angle on this is is obviously the, the uranium side of things. Um, so, so that was enticing to me. The point that you're referring to there about nuclear and, and um, the renewables as, as, as you see them, the, the wind and the solar, they're not a very good match because as you're pointing out, nuclear is, is not low cost, uh, whereas marginal cost in the wind and solar are, are very. So they can there could be a bit of sort of an awkward partnership here between them. Uh, it's not like gas where you can just turn on and off uh, nuclear power supplies, at least not that easily. So there's going to be some wrangling over who's doing what supply. And I think the nuclear side of things cannot go ahead without government support of, of you know, the, the guaranteed price, um, which is one of the things you're referring to there with Hinkley, Hinkley Point, where you know if they're going to be the baseload of the, of the power grid, then they're going to need to be profitable. Um, and so they're going to need to be able to wholesale at a, at a certain price in order to ensure that. The key part of the cost as well of running nuclear power is this safety issue and the infrastructure and so on. That's also controlled by the government. So to me, if governments are, are twisting um, on nuclear power, then I think that is a, a huge factor in you know, the various sort of bottlenecks and problems with nuclear power, the safety, the cost, whether they get their guaranteed, um, you know, basically guaranteed profits almost. So that shift... In, in the government side, driven by what I see as, as renewable energy sort of letting us down or because we haven't got the technology yet in terms of batteries to make it work efficiently enough, that, that key shift is now starting to happen. The, the disappointing part is that it should have happened about 10, 20 years ago uh, and environmentalism prevented that. And, and now you, you know, we've, got these nuclear, we've got these coal power plants, these gas power plants um, that, are, that are being turned to when, when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. And so it feels like 
we've missed our opportunity. In terms of the investment angle, a missed opportunity like that and, and the desire to play catch up is a really good profitable situation for investors because you know governments are going to have to go play along with companies. Governments are going to have to approve uranium mines faster than they otherwise would if all of this had been rolled out in a careful way. Usually when there's some sort of boom in energy or commodities, that doesn't necessarily mean that investors will profit. Shale gas being the perfect example of that. But when you've got these situations where the government's trying to catch up, I think that does tend to deliver profitable opportunities, especially to lobbyists, but I think investors can get along for the ride. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are two things there. Firstly, I have kind of, you know, maybe it's a fader on my part, but I have never quite been able to get my head around how environmentalists oppose nuclear so vociferously. And, you know, I can understand to a small extent why it might not be your favorite thing, but to prefer, as they do in Germany, you know, brown coal from Poland, I you know, I guess maybe it's just a, a case of now in the 2020s, we're more aware of what the real issues are. But um, yeah, the stats around the danger of nuclear compared to coal is negligible. Um, are you saying so this is, you know, a theme that's been running between us for a number of years, Nick, that there is a profitable opportunity here, because regardless of the cost benefits of nuclear, it looks as though governments are pushing towards it. And so the asset that they're going to need in uranium is going to be in high demand whether or not it's the correct solution for the energy transition. So you mentioned the problems of renewables. I would, you know, I would offer a counter and we're not sure to the extent uh, that this is true, but that there is a strong case that nuclear doesn't fit with renewables because as you say, it's 24-7 and what renewables need is sort of to do most of the work and then have a gas plant or, you know, decarbonized offset gas plant to come in and just fill the gaps when it's needed. And a 24-7 plant doesn't quite match up in the same way. Um, so it's 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 hard for me to know exactly what the role of nuclear is going to be. I do believe in the concept of a mix. But what you're saying is the governments are creating the investment opportunity, rightly or wrongly. Well, logically, where do you think they should decide then? Should we go with a mix of, of um, renewables that are intermittent and we have battery technology or just go with nuclear, which just solves the underlying problem? You know, it just makes more sense to, you know, if, if, if one solution needs another solution, why not go with the one that solves both, which is nuclear power? Well, because there's a cost issue there and that what renewables are offering, uh, at least in my mind, is an incredibly low cost energy platform and also an entire new system. So the concept of baseload electricity is like, um, I don't know how to describe it, but when they, when, you know, the Ford Model T came out and cars became more mainstream, they then built a lot of roads. And what's happening with renewables is you're creating this new system of power where it's not a centralized baseload form, it's a decentralized intermittent form. So renewable capacity, for example, instead of having, you know, we know we need 100% of power, so we need 100% of fossil fuels or nuclear or whatever, you have 160 or 180% capacity for renewables to cope with the intermittency. intermittency. You then have batteries as well, and the de developments of sort of grid management have showed that, you know, Denmark's renewable power is over 50%. South Australia was... 100% on almost every day in October recently. And the UK here is a, is around 40% renewables already. And that has been shown to be far less problematic than people thought five years ago. And that will sort of continue to be true as, as people develop their understanding of the new system. And that what is then happening once you have the infrastructure in place, imagine this, Nick, you know, so one argument is that the deflation of the last 20 years has been in large part driven by the entry of, you know, China's low cost labor force, and, and the lower cost of production there. You know, there's an argument around inflation that we might not see that after this crisis in the same way we did after 2008. 
Um, but what China is doing, it seems to me, and there is an argument here because they are they're burning a lot of coal still because it's you know fifty to sixty percent of their current mix. But they're pushing very aggressively towards renewables, almost more aggressively than anyone. They're building more renewables in a single plant currently than the entirety of German renewables capacity for the last twenty years. Um, is that they are building themselves an incredibly low cost energy platform, which will once again allow them to undercut the rest of the world as they have been for 20 years. And that is actually just an unbelievable economic advantage if you think about it. So for the UK, instead of relying on international exports, firstly, we have our own energy source. And not only that, but it's incredibly low cost once the infrastructure is in place. And so the cost of production must fall or suddenly there's just these whole new business models where, you know, I said you'd have 180% renewables on the day when it's all firing, you have 80% of spare electricity. The Bitcoin miners will be going crazy running their plants like anything. There'll be new business models cropping up to take advantage of this new free electricity on the best days. And those, yeah, well, hydrogen is one example where, you know, you can take the excess electricity, turn it into something valuable. But there will be others. I'm absolutely sure of it. Once people see the opportunities of zero marginal cost power, people will come in to take advantage of that low cost energy. Yeah, I think we're not... We shouldn't be risking the the sort of period in between this dream and and now when you know we're getting the results that everyone's seeing on their power bill at the moment these gas crises and, and these all these issues within you know, in, you know industries in germany closing down that shouldn't have happened we should have been on nuclear all along and i think turning to the wind and solar risks these things you know risks the issues of, of intermittency or a, you know, the requirement to, to build 180% of capacity in terms of the initial infrastructure. To me, we should have gone with what was green and proven and safe, um, and I think reasonable cost, which is, is this nuclear uh, nuclear world. And I think governments, you know, they're always solving the last crisis. So I think they're going to you know, come up with a nuclear solution that we should have had when maybe by the time nuclear is rolled out, we should be going for the things that you know, you, you're dreaming about. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm I'm not dreaming they're happening, but the point, yeah, the time, the time factor. No, what's happening? What's happening, Kit, is ridiculous spikes in people's power bills because the green revolution was rolled out before the battery and the infrastructure was ready for it. That's what's happening. What might happen next is the battery technology catches up. I fundamentally disagree. I'd say what's happening. Let's let's say you're an oil company, Nick, uh, and you're looking to invest in a new project. It's got a 20 year life cycle, but you realise that in 25 years you know, oil demand is forecast to be 25 million barrels a day instead of 100. How then do you raise investment for that vehicle? There is no payback on it. It's going to, you know, a large portion of it is going to be stranded. Maybe you can sell it in this decade, maybe not. When people talk about governments forcing, you know, the ESG movement and governments mean there's no investment in oil. There's less investment in oil because they can see the future just as clearly as the rest of us. And there's not going to be demand for their product for 25 years. So why would you invest in an asset that is going to produce for that long? So what's happening is not that we're forcing an energy crisis upon people. It's not the green revolution. It's not solar and wind. To an extent, there has been a mismanagement of the transition. There's not enough storage, as you correctly point out. You know, some things have gone too quickly or there's not been, you know, the gas storage in the UK, I think, fell from 20% of annual demand to 5%. So it's been a mismanaged transition. And we would have argued against those things as they were happening. But the point is not that, you know, we're forcing these fossil fuel crises on these with our new renewable en energies. The point is that the businesses involved can see that there is no payback on their future investments. And so they're not doing it. And that's why you're seeing, you know, the volatility that we're having in coal prices, gas prices and oil prices as well. 
that is a signal of peaking and decline. I don't think it is. And I think they would follow uh, a huge amount of investment in those in those industries. And I think that would be profitable. And uh, tobacco being that, that famous example of you know what's you know, generated outsized returns for investors, the industry that's most vilified by the government. I think there'd be a, a similar sort of situation. Um, and you know, the forecast demand, and, and then you've also got to consider the forecast supply. So if it's undershooting the demand, then there is going to be a profitable situation there. And these things can overcorrect, as, as you're saying. And what we've had over the last few months is an overcorrection where the renewable transition got ahead of itself and, and all of a sudden there wasn't enough gas anymore. So I think that's what has woken up this nuclear opportunity is, as, as you mentioned, the, the mismanagement of gas, of uh, renewable rollouts that's causing the gas crisis to follow on. So I think people's perceptions of what sort of solutions are actually viable has shifted right now. If that ends up undermining something that's viable, that's, that's really bad. But you know, like, as, as you know, I always think governments always mismanage these things. As soon as you have the government involved, it's going to be mismanaged and there's going to be some sort of disaster. This is just the latest, latest example of that. Yeah, I mean, uh, a key point I would make is now that this is very much a private sector rollout. So if you look at the gas companies or the utility companies, what they've been doing over the last decade, they're shifting from gas to renewables because they can see which way things are going. Um, but in terms of the mismanagement, I would say the mismanagement has been not building enough renewables to compensate for the failing of the fossil fuel industry that is being crushed under its own weight and under its own future. So their own underinvestment is causing this. We need to build out the renewables as quickly as possible to compensate for the falling investment in solar and wind. But you're absolutely right. Uh, and I, I have been saying this as well. I know it sort of sounds contrary, but that there will be volatility in the fossil fuel industries. There will be overcorrections, mismanagements. And you're absolutely right to say that there will be investment opportunities. And the way that I sort of frame this is that you know, there are sort of long term investments and short term trading opportunities. And what we're seeing currently has been a, you know, a wonderful trading opportunity in fossil fuels. We know that they're not going to disappear overnight. We know it's going to be a slow and gradual process, probably slower and more gradual than I would wish. But yeah, absolutely right to say that along that path, there'll be volatility. And, uh, you know, there's a, a consultancy called Thunder Said Energy that have pointed to the, the decline of whale oil when, you know, diesel fuel and, you know, petrol fuel were discovered and that as the demand for whale oil fell, it didn't actually, well, it meant it was a bad investment and companies are going bankrupt within the industry. And that's what I mean about, you know, an oil project being a bad investment for the company itself. But for investors like us looking at the stocks, as companies go bankrupt, and as you say, as supply and demand mismatches more aggressively, which has happened most obviously with coal, which, you know, for which global demand peaked in 2013, and there's been huge underinvestment, and now we're seeing the spike. You know, there will be trading opportunities that are short term along the way, but you have to be very astute. And I'd say the thing that I would challenge is this idea of a new uh, sort of oil and fossil fuels super cycle that is, you know, five to 10 years long. These are shorter term trading opportunities, as I see them, at least. Yeah, I, I think I would take that. Well, I have personally taken the opposite side of that bet. But I'm more curious about how you say that this is a private sector phenomenon and it's not governments pushing out fossil fuels. Because my understanding is that things like the carbon price and the subsidies and all of the regulatory side of things is having a very big impact. So, for example, the, the Dutch government, um, they, they uh, refused to cancel the running down of the Groningen gas field despite the gas crisis. Or, you know, the, or the carbon credit markets, for example, uh, in Europe have had a big impact. So I think the, the government 
intervention is having a huge impact on the investment in the private sector for, for um, oil and, and, and um, coal and things like that. And I think that intervention is behind a lot of this, uh, this crisis that you're seeing in gas and coal and, and, and other um, dirtier forms of energy that have failed to fill the gap of renewables when there's this intermittency issue. Uh, yeah, no, so they, they are playing a role, and you're right, carbon credits are a part of that policy direction. And also, you know, the Paris Agreement in 2015, for example, when 195 world leaders get together and say, we are going to transition away from fossil fuels, we're going to get to net zero. And, and the things that you're seeing in Glasgow at COP26 at the moment, they send a powerful signal from governments to corporates and to financiers that this is the direction of travel. If you finance an oil project for 25 years, you might not get a return because this is the direction those are going. Uh, I suppose when I say it's a private sector led thing, I mean that, you know, a lot of, you know, renewables in 70% of the world or 75% of the world no longer need subsidies to compete with coal. It's already cheaper to tear down your coal plant and rebuild solar from the start. So including the upfront cost of building your solar farm, it's still cheaper to generate electricity via solar power and wind. Um, and the other thing to remember always, which I think goes under the radar quite a lot, is that the fossil fuel industry is so unbelievably heavily subsidized that when people talk about government involvement to push renewables and phase out fossil fuels or whatever, the billions and billions and trillions of pounds of taxpayer money that have gone towards, yes, creating energy that we needed and it's important that it's cheap for people for all of the reasons that we know, but that money, instead of subsidizing fossil fuels, is simply being transitioned to a different form of energy. It's not like you know, poor old fossil fuels fighting it on their own while renewables get subsidies. It's actually the opposite is true and that we know how much fossil fuels are getting subsidized in the North Sea. So I think actually currently companies are getting paid that, you know, they're, they're, they're not paying to operate in the North Sea. They're getting paid because of phase out rules and getting 100 million for gently slowing, you know, your, your close down of an oil field or whatever it is. So that it's important to remember that the subsidies for fossil fuels are astronomical compared to those for renewables and that's simply a slow shift that's taking place yeah again another example of once the government gets involved and the things we should have been doing are not done and other strange things are done instead it's um it's another example of that and i think one day we'll look back at the renewables boom in the same way we'll say that was a huge malinvestment a huge mistake we should have been doing i don't know what it is instead maybe it's nuclear as we've been talking about but just the fact that the government's so heavily involved in it tells me that there's there's something wrong there. There's some misallocation of capital. And often we find out what it is in the end, um, and often we don't. Yeah, I mean, it's true. I, I'm I'm heartened by the actions at COP26, uh, the pledges that are taking place to end deforestation and cut methane emissions and all of those things. And one of the things that the UK has tried to do quite aggressively, I think, is involve businesses, corporations, banks, those kind of things, because they've realised what you're saying that if they try and just do it themselves but also to a large extent i don't always agree with the way in which they are allocating resources or saying which way these things are going to go so in the uk for example we're favoring carbon capture and storage which is a sort of fossil fuel company fantasy to be honest it's not economically viable really and also it's going to be 15 years away and um you know so you're quite right that there will be misallocations in every company going along the way and that, you know, to pull things back around to uranium, there is, you know, almost certain to be an opportunity there if what you're saying is true about the way governments are turning. Yeah, there's uh, this, I think this catching up idea or the catching up nature of what nuclear is going to have to do 
is what I think offers the outsized investment gains um, in uranium and then in, in nuclear technology providers as well, if you, if you can find them, there's, there's not that many. Um, I remember back in the day, I would talk a lot about thorium um, because the, the first nuclear reactor was, was using thorium, not uranium, and it, it can't melt down. It doesn't have any of the safety issues and the, the storage afterwards um, is, is far less of an issue. But unfortunately, the governments came in, decided they wanted uranium in order to have nuclear power, a uh, nuclear weapons potential. And so the thorium revolution was, was kind of nipped in the bud. And so we could have been there all along. You know, we could have had you know, cheap, safe nuclear power for, for the last, I think it's more than, it's about 100 years now, I think. So um, it, it's, it's disappointing. The governments always feel this need to, to intervene in, in weird and wonderful ways. And, um, and then, you know, you and I talk about the, the consequences, but we never find out what would have happened. It's, it's so frustrating. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the way you said, you know, we could have had cheap, clean, free electricity for 100 years, you know, in the third of the Christopher Nolan Batman films, there's this dream of, you know, clean, renewable energy for everyone, you know, and that's sort of always been the dream of nuclear. I think it's worth remembering that there are reasons why it's never come to pass. The government, as you say, and the thorium, I don't know a huge amount about it, but they will have played a role. But scientists in this in the 50s and 60s were saying, this is it, all power is going to be nuclear going forwards. But there are reasons why that didn't take place other than the government as well. And, you know, people talk about fusion again, if it does happen, it's not going to happen soon enough to prevent the climate crisis, which is, I guess, what I care about and so many others. And small modular reactors, too, are a very exciting new technology, smaller, more scalable, cheaper, hopefully, than large scale nuclear. But um, yeah, it's an industry that has often under delivered on the, the hope and the hype that it, it promises. It's still there and maybe it one day it will. Um, for me, I think there are more urgent concerns to deal with in this decade. But do you think if um, if this magical free energy solution did pop up, do you think it would be considered viable and would be rolled out? Or do you think the lobbyists and the governments and the various interests that have an interest in the power industry would manage to quash it? So you're saying if nuclear fusion was achieved? At... Yeah, it doesn't matter what it is, say it's nuclear fusion. I think it would be thorium, but yeah, go ahead. Um, I would say if there was a viable low-cost renewable solution to the climate crisis that the popular support behind that would be so vociferous that it would be unstoppable and that you know we differ on this you view the transition or what i'm now calling the energy disruption because it's technology driven not government driven um you view that as something that governments are sort of vaguely forcing on people and they're going to mess up i view governments as responding to you know, decades of widespread popular demand that has reached, you know, this incredible fever pitch now with, you know, the social and financial communities combining to say this is what has to happen. This is where we're going. And what we're seeing at COP is not governments sitting around thinking, I wonder how we can get people this time. They're saying, how do we deliver on the promises that we've made to our voters, to our people? And that this is very much a sort of, it's not grassroots in that sort of cliched way, but it's, it's by popular demand. Yeah. I think the idea that governments are thinking about how to deliver on promises they made to their voters is, is a bit bizarre to me. I don't think the political promise has ever been kept, but um, I, I still see, They're not see your keeping point. It because it's a political promise, I think there's just, you know, pretty strong unanimity that we're in a bit of trouble and we should probably do something about it. And they're doing their best to do that. And no one's going to get it perfectly right. But people want it. Governments are trying to deliver it. And the private sector is really stepping in, delivering the solutions. You know, I spend all day of every week 
looking at the technological solutions to climate change, their costs, how competitive they are with the incumbents. And it's very exciting. I always say to people, you know, climate change is probably a lot worse than you think and a lot more immediate and urgent. And so it's much more important not to defend fossil fuels. Uh, however, the energy transition, the energy disruption is going much better than you think as well. So there's bad news and then there's good news and they still sort of bring each other into balance. But we've got to keep working. I think there's um, more financial return to be had for the private sector in, in providing private jets and, and lobbying in order to keep oil fields alive and lobbying to have wind farms rolled out than in solving an underlying problem. Um, and I think that has more power than the political desire to, to solve the underlying problem in terms of what decisions are actually made in the end. Uh, I think you know, the rollout of, of so much of green energy has, has shown that where you know, investors and government money was used to, to pump and dump basically things like Solyndra and lots of China projects. Um, I think that short-term gain is much more what incentivizes and interests politicians. They have a very short career. You've mentioned private jets a few times, Nick. What's your problem? I just don't think if what you were saying was, was true, then that they would fly in, in their private jets and have their huge motorcades. I think that they would take action themselves in their own, you know, their own lives to try and reduce the emissions or, or do whatever it is that environmentalists are calling for. I think they do things over Zoom like you and I do, especially because they forced us to. Um, and I think that hypocrisy is, is revealing in a way that is, is quite a lot larger than just having a laugh about what they're doing. I think it reveals that they're not actually that worried about emissions or climate change. What they're worried about is you know, elections and, and making money after, after their political career is finished. Uh, and getting good consulting jobs with with you know, green either green or fossil fuel doesn't matter which one, um, and, and that is more telling than uh, than the, any sort of concerns about emissions or or voters. Yeah, I mean you make obviously a lot of good points. The private jets thing comes up a lot. I mean Ursula von der Leyen, EU president, who I know you're a huge fan of, I think took a, a 31 mile flight, which means that you know would have been a very short drive or train or whatever, a 31 mile flight takes about five minutes uh, on a private jet and everyone's sort of saying, well, this shows the hypocrisy and the motorcade of Biden coming into COP and everything. But I'd, I'd probably just say two things here. Firstly, that the asymmetric return of their attendance at the event of bringing people together. I think, you know, the UK government organized a summit where the leaders of the main emitters, so UK, you know, the sort of G7 style countries met with, you know, a small group of the the most at risk nations, the leaders of the most at risk nations, and the the emitters had to listen to the the victims basically, and it was deeply uncomfortable. And you sort of can create these these powerful things by bringing people together. And the asymmetric return of what can be achieved by a conference like this relative to the emissions of a single private jet or a single motorcade or whatever is worth bearing in mind. And that the use of private jets and motorcades, what it reveals is the you know the inability of the current system to adapt even for people who really want to. So if there were available solutions, they would take them. But the, the necessities of the job and the realities of the current world that we live in show that it's really hard to get away from fossil fuels even if you want to. And that's what we need to try and change. But don't you, change. Don't you think they should change that first? Or first of all, don't you think that people should stay awake when they attend these events and bring <laughs> yeah. together people is a good idea? But secondly, they should be changing their motorcades and their flights before they tell other people or they force other people what to do in terms of their policies. Okay, well, I agree only in the extent that they should advocate for changing the solutions that are necessary. So if they 
in the UK, our classic example was, are we going to open our... But they should be doing, not advocating. That's what I'm arguing. They should be not driving all over the place and flying all over the place if that's what they're telling us to do. We need to be brought together too. I want to see you, Kit. But if the, you know, there's some sort of surcharge on emissions, I might not be able to. Yeah, well, I'd love to come to Japan, obviously. Um, all I'd say is, you know, if they were telling people that they had to use a, you know, zero carbon form of flight and they weren't doing that themselves... I would agree with what you say. That doesn't currently exist. It does. We're doing it now. Yeah, okay. Well, that's obviously a good point. But what I'm saying is that the the power of bringing people together into the same room for an event like this delivers an asymmetric return to global carbon emissions relative to a single flight would be the argument. And I think that would be theirs. You're right that there's hypocrisy involved in in a lot of what these people do. Um, I, I personally am of the belief that what's being achieved at COP today in terms of the pledges and the groups that are being formed is, is very powerful, uh, more powerful than the emissions from the flights. It would be brilliant if they could find better ways to do it. And I think as time goes on, they will. But it shows the limits of the current system more than the hypocrisy of those involved, I would say. Yeah, well, we'll see whether those, um, those alternative ways of, of doing things, things emerge. Um, that would obviously be good. I think, again, you and I can agree on that. The question is how we get there and what happens in the meantime. Indeed. Well, anyway, Nick, as always, it's it's enlightening and, and a delight to talk to you. Thanks for tuning in so late uh, and for bringing, you know, as always, your best form. Uh, it's, uh, it's great to be challenged uh, and great for everyone, I think, to hear both sides of the argument. So, yeah, really appreciate you coming on and thanks very much for your time. Yeah, we should we should mention that we're actually good friends and that we're, we're doing this to wind each other up and be entertaining as much as anything. Yeah, people have probably seen the rage etched onto my face while you're talking. I think hopefully that can sort of be, you know, we'll just focus on you while, while you're talking. Yeah, we're, we're lucky to, to work in an industry where we can say our opinions and our views and, and we're around people who we disagree with all the time. So we're, we're quite used to it. Well, as you said halfway through the call, you know, you've taken your side of your bet and I've probably taken mine. Um, although it's worth saying again that ever since coronavirus, it's been a long time advocating, you know, for un for oil and gas assets because they were offering at a period of time 20 to 30 percent dividends and oil prices were crazy. I would say that a lot of that has now balanced out and, you know, I've developed a personal discomfort with profiting from those. But, um, you know, in investment, there's always two sides of a story and there's always two sides to take. Um, so we'll see how our bet plays out over time, I think, Nick. Yeah, so far, I think uh, things are going well for me. Uh, since I was on with you and James uh, a while ago, there was a mention of a uh, coal stock and it was just before the coal stock soared. So I'm I'm sitting pretty so far, but I like what you say that it's a short-term trade, not a long-term investment. I have to think about that one. Yeah, well, I'd say you're going pretty well this year. If we, uh, if we restart the chart in 2019, I'd back us. And uh, right. I'll see, and I'll see you in 2050. Um, well, anyway, yeah, Nick, exactly. Um, plenty of ways to make money, as you say. This is the brilliance of South Bank is that you have editors with different views, and you have both sides of every coin. Um, and as always, a huge pleasure to talk to you. To everyone who's watched and listened, I hope you enjoyed having Nick on as a special guest this week. And uh, we'll be back with me and Sam as usual uh, next Friday for you on the Exponential Investor Podcast. Thanks very much for watching, and bye for now.